over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Dr. Mark Hitchcock. By the way, any, any distant relationship to Alfred that you know of? Well, I always tell people he never left me any money when he passed away. So <laughs> if it's, it's pretty distant if we're related. So, uh, yeah. You had that kind of had to haunt you, no pun intended, right? In your whole life, right? Yeah, yeah. Growing, growing up. Yeah. Now, you know, I'll tell young people, I go to the bank or somewhere and I'll tell my name, I'll say Hitchcock, just like Alfred. Yeah, they don't know who I'm talking That's about. Exactly. So, yeah, it's a little different. Dr. Mark Hitchcock is the senior pastor of Faith Bible Church in Edmond, Oklahoma, a position he has held since 1991. He has served as an adjunct faculty member of Dallas Theological Seminary in their Bible Exposition Department from 2006 to 2013 before becoming a full-time faculty member in 2014. Mark has authored over 20 books. I think that's wrong. I think you're up to like 31 now. Is that right? Yeah, it's a little bit over 30. Yeah. Over 30, yeah. Primarily in the end-time prophecy arena, he speaks cross-country and internationally at churches and conferences. He and his wife, Cheryl, have two grown sons, one daughter-in-law, one grandson, one granddaughter. Aside from being a nerd like me, reading and studying, he likes walking, lifting weights, and playing golf. You're a golfer, huh? Yes. Even though you yeah, know about wife, the end times? You, you know my about the end times and you well. golf? <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's, you know, got to do something to get your mind off that. My wife loves to golf too. So we go together a lot. So that's good. Most guys have to leave their wife to go play. My wife likes it. So it's a wonderful retirement for couples. I totally agree. Well, thanks for, for doing this for us, Mark. And of course, the book of Revelation, you and I are, uh, you're a bit younger than me, but it's interesting how trends have come and gone in the seventies. Boy, prophecy conferences were huge. People would come out to hear, uh, you know, the likes of Tim LaHaye and, and Jerry Jenkins and, uh, John Walvert. And, you know, it's kind of wax and wane over time. What, what, what got you from a big perspective, what got you interested in prophecy to begin with? Well, I got interested in prophecy. Um, I grew up in a really good Bible teaching church. In fact, you, you know, I'm sure you know Chaplain Bill from down yep. at the seminary. He was our youth director and uh, song leader at the church. David Cotton was my pastor. Oh, yeah. Mike Lawson was there. So it was a great church. Uh, but in, in 1970, when Late Great Planet Earth came out, for really about two or three years, or Hal Lindsey's book, people talked about prophecy all the time. And I was around, you know, 11 years old, 11, 12 years old. And there was a lot of stirring about that, you know, in, in the church back in those days, a lot of people interested. And I remember reading a lot of that at that time and kind of, you know, was in the back of my mind for a long time. In my early 20s, when I began to study the Bible more in depth, I just realized that there were just large swaths of the Bible that if I didn't know something about God's prophetic program, I just wouldn't understand them. Mm. Kind of like I asked Dr. Walvard one time why he loved prophecy. And he said, because I love the Bible. Yeah. He said, 28% of the Bible was prophecy at the time it was written. So I really like that answer to me. If you love the Bible, you love prophecy. There was a desire in me to really understand the Bible. And I knew that I couldn't put the Bible together if I didn't understand 
something of God's prophetic program in Daniel and Ezekiel, Zechariah, the book of Revelation and all. So that's really what it was. It wasn't so much, you know, wanting to know the signs of the times or, you know, those kinds of things. It was just really wanting to, to really understand the Bible, understand God's word. I was at uh, DC and Walbert had come through and we had, we would host the Dallas alumni uh, gatherings at our church in Washington, DC, Northern Virginia. And so he came and spoke and he was well in his nineties. And I still remember he kind of jokingly chided us. He said, why don't you men teach prophecy? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He loved it. He did. Well, let's jump into this letter we call Revelation, no S on it, no shortage of interpretations on this book, uh, whether you're dispensational, reformed, pre, post, ah, I mean, it's all over the gambit, and uh, people have lots of opinions. So give us, the I like to ask the experts, a 25, 50-word overview of what you think the main purpose, point, theme of Revelation is. Yes, you know, my, my statement about the book of Revelation involves a couple different things, but I call it the advanced history, which that's prophecy, basically. It's the, the book of Revelation calls itself a prophecy at the beginning and the end. Um, it's the advanced history of how Jesus Christ, by means of judgment, becomes king. And all of that, of course, is with a view to us living a godly life as we await his coming. That really brings the book together because it's the advanced history of how Jesus becomes king. That's really what the book's about. It's all marching toward uh, chapters 19 and 20 of him coming back, receiving the inheritance from the Father, uh, setting up his kingdom on the earth. It's a thousand years then into eternity. But that kingdom comes by means of judgment. This world is headed for judgment. There's a series of seal judgments. There's a series of trumpet judgments. Then there's the bowl judgments. So there's these series of judgments. So it's the advanced history of how Jesus Christ becomes king through judgment. And of course, all of this then is with a view towards calling us to live godly lives as we await his coming. That's a wonderful paragraph. I love it. Thank you. In the in the seven IMs, I call them self-revelatory. He's mm-hmm. disclosing. Would, would you think that fits in a framework of Revelation or am I overstating it there? Well, the book of Revelation, when it calls itself the revelation of Jesus Christ, you know, it's the apocalypsis, and we call it the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. I take it there that you can take that a couple ways. Um, you can take that that Jesus is the one being revealed, or he's or he's the revealer. Now, both are true in Revelation, but really, when it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, I think it's a revelation from Him, right? Certainly of Him, because it goes on and says which God gave Him to show to His bondservants. So, it certainly is a self-revelation of God, but it's a revelation that Jesus Christ is given. He's the channel primarily of that revelation, but He's also the subject of that revelation as well. There, yeah. There's no doubt yeah. about that. He, he's called the Lamb in this book 28 times. So it's certainly God is revealing a lot about him as being the lamb. And also, obviously, he's the lion. He's the conqueror who comes back at the rule and reign. Let's jump into these seven churches. Give us a thumbnail of what the author's doing and maybe a couple of takeaways. I don't want to go through all seven, but there's perhaps one that you'd like to point out or unpack a bit. Uh, we talk about, and I, I love the, you know, the grace and peace to you. We find that often in our salutations, him who is who was, who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And then we're going to get in, we'll talk about the seven spirits in a moment, but give, give me an overview of each of these churches, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, you know, in the book of Revelation, you know, just one thing, you know, I'm sure you, you realize this, you know, this chapter one, verse 19 is kind of the or outline of the book. You know, he says, write what you've seen, 
the things that are and the things after these things. What he's just seen is the radiant resurrected Christ. That's chapter one. And the things that are are these seven churches. So in chapter one, Jesus is standing in the middle of seven lampstands, mm. right in the middle of them. These seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so this book, Revelation, was written literally to these seven churches that are in the western part of Asia Minor, or what today is called Turkey. And I like that Jesus is right in the middle of those lampstands. So he's in the middle of the church. He's at the center. Uh, but, but these seven letters, they, they all kind of follow a similar pattern. Um, you have a statement there, um, you know, to the angel, the church at Ephesus. Not take the angel. There's a human messenger. I won't go into explain that, but it's a human, a human messenger, maybe the pastor of the church. Then there's a revelation of Jesus. There's a statement about who he is. He's kind of the, the correspondent. Uh, then you have, in most of the letters, some commendation, something positive. Then in most of them, then there's something negative, mm-hmm. and there's a correction, and then there's kind of a call to have ears to hear what he's saying. Now, um, one of the letters, the letter of the church at Smyrna, has nothing negative in it. It's all positive. One of the letters is all negative. It's Laodicea. There's nothing positive. But the other five were kind of a mixture of positive and negative. And these letters were written to these seven literal churches. Again, they're, they're in modern day Turkey, back in Asia Minor. So they had obviously had a direct significance to those seven churches at the time they were written. But I think they also have a practical significance for us today. I think there's seven of them because seven obviously being this number of, of completion. Uh, by the way, the number seven is used 54 times in the book of Revelation, so it it's, appears a lot. But I think it's seven churches. This is kind of a full picture of what churches are like. So I think at any time in church history, you're going to have churches like an Ephesus church, a Smyrna church, a Pergamum church. Now, some believe the seven churches also picture seven stages of church history. I don't hold that view. I just don't think it's it's in the text. Unwash, yeah. Yeah, there's just a lot of problems with that. But, you know, we can look at these and, and find application for ourselves. Now, most pastors, you know, they think their church is the Church of Philadelphia. And that's the one that's really, you know, the church that opens the door. It's just positive, great message. But, yeah, I, I, know, t- I tend to uh, to punt on, I'm probably Ephesus. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> we lost yeah, our first love. The church love. at Ephesus is a church that's the, kind of the loveless church. Yeah. Um, you know, great doctrine, great heritage. Um, you know, they've had Paul there. Timothy's been there. Apollos has been there. John, the Apostle John, you know, in that area, you know, they, they've lost their first love. So it's kind of the loveless church, great doctrine, loveless. Uh, the church at Smyrna um, is, a, is a persecuted church. We see that all over the world today. Many churches today can relate to Smyrna, you know, places in, in Myanmar or Cambodia or uh, North Korea, you know, different parts of the world where there's persecution uh, going on. The church at Pergamum um, is a, a church that's uh, compromised uh, with the world. Um, it's, you know, a church that not, not followed Christ and his teaching, but has allowed false teaching to come in. I love, I love when he says the church at Pergamum in verse 13, he says in chapter two, he says, I know where you live. And I think that's a good thing just for people to remember as a practical thing. You know, wherever we are, God knows where we live. He yes. knows our situation we're in. Uh, the church at Thyatira is a church, uh, kind of, I call it the tolerant church. You know, he says uh, in verse 20, um, I have against this uh, this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel. Yeah. There's a lot of churches today that tolerate a lot of false teaching. And again, I don't think the woman's name was really Jezebel, but she was that kind of false prophetess that was there. And they were tolerating these things they shouldn't have been tolerating. There's a time for us to be intolerant of, of false doctrine. Uh, the church at Sardis was a church that had a name. You know, they're kind of living on the past, like a lot of churches. You know, maybe they have a great name, a great heritage, a great legacy. 
but they were dead. I mean, it was a place that it spiritually was dead. There wasn't life there. The church at Philadelphia is uh, this church of the open door. It's a laboring church. They're a, a faithful church to the Lord. Not really anything negative said about them either. I mentioned earlier, Smyrna had nothing negative said. Really, Philadelphia doesn't either. But it's a church that God's put an open door before them. And then Laodicea is the lukewarm church. And I think, you know, a lot of people read about lukewarm. He says, you know, I wish you were hot or cold. You're lukewarm. I'll spew you out of my mouth. I used to take that hot and cold men either be on fire for God or kind of don't know God at all. That's right. the way I translate that or interpret that. But, you know, that never made sense to me. God would want you rather you be lukewarm than not know him. I think it's, an, it's, it's, a, it's a reference to local imagery. The Church of Laodicea, if you, you visited there maybe, but the water there came from five miles away through a pipeline. It was very lukewarm, very, had a lot of minerals in it, kind of almost a natural emetic, kind of made you want to throw up. But Laodicea and Colossae, the other two cities in the Lycus Valley, Hierapolis had hot springs. Their water, people came from all around like a spa. Colossae had wonderful, refreshing, cool water. And so those are both useful. Cold water and Hot water are useful, but he says you're just lukewarm. Interesting. Um, it's kind of like, you know, today no one ever goes in a restaurant, ever says, you know, give me a nice lukewarm Pepsi, you know, I mean, it's <laughs> hot or cold. I mean, it's, you know, coffee, you know, people either want iced coffee or hot coffee, they don't want lukewarm. So they're useless to him in, in this church. And so, you know, we can learn lessons from all of these churches for our own personal right. lives, but also for our churches as well. Go back a little bit, Mark, to, uh, Philadelphia. I'm struck by the pronouns. One of my pet peeves is how translations are uh, losing the divine pronoun, and then mm-hmm. the average English reader doesn't know who the referent might be. But in most of the Bibles now have abandoned that, but in the old NASBs and others, they keep them. But I, I love what he says My word, my name, I will, I have, my perseverance. I am coming. I will make my God, my God, my God, my God. I mean, help me out a little bit there. there there's almost, I'm, I'm struck when I read those pronouns. It always, it always pushes me back a little bit to pause in my reading and study going, why is he almost overstating the fact of this is who's speaking, this is who's working? Well, I think, again, it's just he wants us to know that he's the one who's the sovereign over the church. I mean, he's sovereign over what we do. He's the one who's in control of the past. And he's in control of their present. And he says, you know, you know I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God. He's in control of the future. It's all three three aspects really here of time, of his, his sovereign control over what's happening. And, you know, in some of these churches as well, there's suffering going on at the hands of their people in their, their local towns and cities. I think that's another thing. You want some to know, look, I'm in control, even in the midst of what you're suffering um, within within your churches. So, you know, and he says, I will, I put an open door before you, which no one can shut. I mean, it, it's again, God's sovereignly in control, even of the opportunities that we have. Again, there's difference of opinion about what the right. open door means, but. You know, a church in, church in LA, right? In the... Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> the church of the open door. That's right. <laughs> so uh, a, a random question and we might post-production edit this if it's a crazy question. You give it any thought to parallels of imagery or theology between the, the cycles of judgment in the book of Judges and what we read of these churches? Well, there could be something there. Certainly, it's they're both set. There's seven of them. Yeah, you know, there are you know a couple of the churches here that don't have anything bad said about them. Right. And then one that has nothing good but, said about it. To, to interrupt for a second, but you know how they, they get to a point where they might have some peace, then they sin, and then yeah. the oppression comes in so heavy, they cry out, 
the mm-hmm. Lord sends a deliverer. And of course, that's a whole different discussion about how the cycles of judges degrade down to essentially from national interest to, you know, what I call Terminator type guys, you know, Samson, the one man guy, as opposed to Gideon, as opposed to nationally. But mm-hmm. I wondered about these imagery, the imagery we're seeing beyond the literal text, obviously. But is he saying something here about to us as churches today? This is nothing new. You get into sin, you get encumbered, as you said, by your past, resting on your history, et cetera, or you're lukewarm, you're of no use. And so now I'm going to remind you. But in Revelation, time's up. Yeah, no, you're right. He's warning them that he's coming, you know, over and over again. I mean, he's telling them, look, I'm coming. You know, you, and he tells them, I'll remove your lampstand from out of its place, which has happened. You know, you go to Turkey today, there's a few thousand believers in Turkey, but it's burned over over there spiritually. That happened, you know, what what the Lord said. And, you know, as you've stated, I mean, you look at the book of Judges, you know, look at our country now. I mean, the same kind of thing appears to be, you know, happening as places are, you know, I think today we have a lot of churches that are Pergamum and and Thyatira churches today, you know, where there's tolerance of false doctrine, you know, and and Sardis churches, churches living on the past. I mean, a a lot of lukewarm churches where people are just kind of useless really to God. Um, I think in the way that they're living. So no, I mean, it, there, there's certainly a lot of lessons there. And eventually, you know, judgment came, you know, the time of the judges, you know, it, of course it gave way to the time of Kings and all that, but I guess you could also make an application that in the churches that it's going to give way to the King. There you go. That'll preach just real quickly. Cause I know people have asked me, um, talk about these seven spirits for a moment. Yeah. The seven spirits of God that are mentioned four times called, you know, the seven spirits it's here in chapter one, it's over in chapter four and chapter five, um, where the seven spirits are mentioned. That seems to be in the book of Revelation, though, how God refers to the spirit from a heavenly perspective. It's always in heaven that the spirit is called the seven spirits of God. Later on, there's other references to the spirit, which is called the spirit. So that seems to be kind of a heavenly way of referring to the spirit. There, there are not seven Holy Spirits. I mean, we can say that for sure. Probably what it, most people think what it's a reference to, it could be a reference back to Isaiah chapter 11, where there's a statement there, which I think is a messianic statement of the spirit of the Lord is upon me, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of wisdom. There's seven words used there in the Septuagint, there's six words used there, but in the Septuagint, there's seven that are used. So it could be that it's just referring to these seven kind of attributes or whatever of the Holy Spirit. Others will take this as a reference to uh, Zechariah chapter four, to the lampstand that's there, that's feeding the oil. You know, this is a picture of the seven spirits of God. But however you look at it, most evangelicals would say it's just a picture of kind of the plenitude or the fullness of the, of the spirit's power. Just like when you see the lamb over in chapter five, it's Jesus. You have seven eyes, you know, the, so pictures this idea of number seven being his omniscience. So he doesn't literally have seven eyes. So it's probably just the plenitude or the fullness of the Spirit's power of him being referred to as the seven spirits of God from this kind of heavenly perspective, uh, seems like in the book. I remember Geisler uh, once talking about numbers and imagery, and he said, at the end of the day, God seems to like the number three, seven, 10, 40. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 12, yeah. So when uh, most preachers or Bible studies, they love to talk about the seven churches, and then they stop. <laughs> right. Because what do we but do with the rest of this book, Mark? <laughs> go to chapters 21 and 22. Exactly. And yeah. yeah. 19 maybe. Yeah. yeah. Read them at a wedding, and you're going to have a good time. Help me understand metaphor, 
figure of speech literal when we read some of the things overall in prophetic literature? Right. That's an important issue. You know, we talk about literal interpretation. Some people want to force that to become like a wooden literal interpretation. Obviously, there's a lot of imagery in the book of Revelation. Everybody agrees with that. The question is, yeah, how do we interpret these images? There's what's called plain literal. You know, you and I are talking right now. We're using plain literal language. Everyone knows how to take that. But figurative literal is part of literal interpretation as well. So kind of under underneath you know, literal interpretation, we would have plain literal and figurative literal. You know, if I were to say to you, my dog kicked the bucket last week, um, that's a figurative literal statement in that, you know, that I mean, my dog died. I'm using a figure of speech to, to communicate that. But it refers to something that's literal, that my dog literally died. Getting a, a great key to all of this in the beginning of the book of Revelation, where you have Jesus himself standing in the middle, it says, of seven lampstands. And it says he has seven stars in his right hand. When you get to the end of chapter one, Jesus tells us those seven lampstands are the seven churches. And the seven stars in my right hand are the seven messengers of those seven churches. So what Jesus is telling us in chapter one is kind of giving us the golden key to interpreting this book. When you see a symbol, it refers to something that's literal. It has a literal reference. But the seven lampstands aren't just seven lampstands that shine light that they refer to seven churches. The seven stars refer to seven messengers. We go back to the book of Daniel. Really, we can, can, can get this from the book of Daniel. You know, Nebuchadnezzar sees the image, you know, the head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. Daniel looks at Nebuchadnezzar and said, you, O king, are the head of gold. And that will be another kingdom. So it's an image. It's a, it's, a, it's a metaphor, a picture that refers to four literal empires. So we carry that forward to the book of Revelation. We have the same thing here. We see a symbol, and 46 times in the book, symbols are interpreted right in the context. You have a what I call the built-in interpretation. Other places where they're not, sometimes another place in the book will help us, or we can go back to the Old Testament and find that same imagery. So we're, we're not out there on our own, and we can't just go out there and say, well, just because this is symbolic language, that then we can just take it however we want to. And, bow- and bowling, I guess, when you put up the rails, you know, to yeah. keep your ball out of the gutter, there's rails that have been put up so that you you have to follow those to make sure that you're not just going off and interpreting things however you want to. The symbolic language is not a license to just go out and make it mean what you want. I remember, uh, I'm sure you do too, uh, some of the uh, prophetic publications in the 70s and 80s and some of the caricatures and the drawings and depictions and Clarence Larkin was one in the 1800s who you know, had these elaborate pictures and try to explain them. And one of the Messianic Jewish Christian publications I won't name was very specific about, you know, this is the dimension of the ark. This is what the beast is going to look like. <laughs> I, yeah. I was, I was like, what's, what's the point of this other than just being mildly entertaining? No, you're right. I mean, it's, you can take it a hyper literally. And then other people basically just say, well, it's symbolic and we can't, you know, it doesn't refer to anything concrete. Yeah. I take a futurist view of the book from chapters four and following's future, and it's symbolizing for us literal people, literal places, literal events that will, will occur. But again, it's in symbolic language, you know, the rider on a red horse, you know, with a sword, you know, that's dripping in blood. Well, you know, it doesn't, you don't have to be a, a great Bible interpreter to realize that refers to warfare. So, you know, a lot of them are just fairly self-explanatory in the context. 
Well, you've said that, and I appreciate that. Pick one and walk us through one that's uh, self-explanatory, where the text explains the image. Yes. For instance, like over in chapter 12, that's a really, that's a fascinating chapter. But in chapter 12, actually mentions a woman clothed with the sun, the moon's under her feet, on her head a crown of 12 stars. I'll just mention quickly, oh, that one there, you go back to the Old Testament to find that. The only place you find a woman where you find the sun and the moon and 12 stars is back in, in Genesis chapter 37, you know, where Joseph is there and the, the 12 stars come and bow down to him, which are his brothers, and the sun and the moon, which is his mother and father. So we know that's Israel. Then he mentions the, uh, the great red dragon that has seven heads and 10 horns. He says his tail swept a third of the stars of heaven and threw him to the ground. When you go over to verse nine, just a few verses down, it says the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who's called the devil and Satan. So it tells us who the dragon is. And then it says who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So that tells us who the stars are that were thrown down. So the dragon is Satan and the stars that are, that are thrown down with him are his angels, which would be, I take it, other fallen angels. So Again, you know, people go and look at the woman and the dragon and they make all these, you know, wild interpretations. It tells you in the text or clearly in the Old Testament what these are. That's helpful. Yeah. And there's a lot. There's, you know, several places in the book where it gives you an interpretation, you know, there, you know, right in the context. I think it's helpful. Or again, some of them are just very easy to understand. You've got the you know, the rider on the fourth horse. The horse is black, has a scale, you know, weighing out food. Well, you know, it's famine. And also, too, when you go to Revelation 6, really, that runs parallel with Matthew 24. You know, Matthew 24 is called the mini apocalypse, where Jesus gives right. kind of his rundown of the end times. And Revelation 6 is really kind of parallel with that. So if you want to know what something means in Revelation 6, you can go to Matthew 24, I think, and kind of vice versa. You know, Jesus, we call the Olivet Discourse that he gave there kind of the right. mini apocalypse. It's kind of the Reader's Digest version. So there's a lot of ways like that that you can, that you can correlate and compare these things to make sure that we're not kind of just going out there on our own and making something up. But that's more fun. And that's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's an old saying, a little uh, deal I heard years ago. A guy said, "You know, wonderful things in the Bible I see, especially those put there by you and by me." Yeah, so, yeah, that'll so, work. Yeah. A lot of people do that in Revelation a lot. Well, let's walk through some of these things. Of course, folks want to know about the seals. They want to know about the bowls of judgment. Let's just walk through some of these beginning in chapter five about the seven seals. Yes. You know, chapters four and five, I think, you know, can take us to the future because it begins with the words after these things. But Jesus said in chapter one, um, you know, I'm going to show you the things that are, that was the things you've seen. That's chapter one, the things that are, that's chapters two and three in his day. And then the things after these things, that's where it begins. And John's caught up to heaven. Now, my, my view is he's put in like a spiritual time machine. He's taken to the future, and he's going to see these visions of the future of what's coming. And he's caught up to heaven, and he sees a throne. And chapter 4, I call the throne chapter of the Bible. He sees this throne. Chapter 5, the one who's seated on the throne, which is clearly in the context God the Father, has a scroll in his right hand. They make a, a global search to find somebody to open this scroll, and nobody's found worthy to open it. And this scroll, the, the, only, the only document in that day that was sealed with seven seals was it was a will or an inheritance. And so what this document in, in the Father's right hand is the inheritance of the nations of this world, which, of course, is what Adam and Eve forfeited back in Genesis chapter 3. Um, and so all of history has been moving towards Jesus coming back 
as the, the last Adam, the greater Adam, to take the inheritance. And so Jesus is found worthy. He's the, the lamb that was slain. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. So he takes the scroll out of the right hand of him who sits on the throne. And what you have really the rest of the book of Revelation is getting that scroll open. Because once that scroll is open, Jesus takes the inheritance in chapters 19 and 20. So the rest of the book is that scroll being open. And what you have in the seals in chapter six, you have the first six seals are opened and they're judgments. That's why I said earlier that Jesus is going to come back and take the inheritance by means of judgment. So this world is headed for judgment. And, you know, people don't like to hear that. And I don't like to say it, but it's true. We're headed for a terrible time of judgment to get to the kingdom. So the first six seals are opened on this scroll. And then there's a there's a there's a, an interruption. It's kind of an intermission. And then the seventh seal is opened at the beginning of chapter eight. And the seventh seal contains seven trumpets. So it looks like, hey, we've opened the seventh seal. We're at the end now. But wait a minute. The seventh seal contains seven trumpets. And so the first six trumpets then are blown. And then there's another intermission. There's another long intermission there. A lot of things are laid out. And then finally, in chapter 11, the seventh trumpet is blown. And we have a little bit more intermission. And the seventh trumpet then is going to contain the seven bowls. So when you get to the end of the seven bowls in chapter 16, there's kind of one more order of business. God destroys Babylon, and then Christ comes back and takes the kingdom. So all of this is moving towards Christ taking the kingdom. So once that scroll gets opened, seven-sealed scroll, Christ is taking the inheritance. It's Psalm 2 you know, ask of me, I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. Mm. And, you know, I always like to say to people, you know, history's headed to the feet of Jesus, so it'd be good for us to get a head start and start living there now. But that's what the whole book's really moving towards. These judgments are just being unfolded and kind of some intermissions in between to kind of fill in some details, kind of get us to that ultimate final point. You point out the uh, intermissions, the interludes. I still remember in college reading this, studying it for the first time in some detail, and for whatever reason, like chapter eight, wood verse one, there was silence in heaven for half an hour. And it, it just chilled me mm. to oh, think yeah. that all this activity, all this, you know, majesty going on all this, you know, the 144,000, et cetera. And then it's just like a hurricane eye, you know, it's like the pall before the next layer of judgment. No, it is. It's stunning because when you read back in chapters four and five, heaven's a loud place. Yeah. You know, the crown with a loud voice, you know, the 24 elders, you know, the, the, the four beasts, you know, um, you know, everyone's crying out. I mean, these, these songs are being sung to the one who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And I, you know, I always tell you this when I teach the book of Revelation, but I've been at, at a ball game before with 80,000 people. And they'll have a moment of silence and it'll be 30 seconds, maybe up to a minute. It's, it seems like five or ten minutes. Yeah, just sitting for a minute, just dead silence, just 80,000 people. And you think about it in heaven. Which, by the way, to that passage may indicate that we'll know passage of time in heaven. Yeah. Some will say, well, you know, this is just John speaking from an earthly perspective. But there's several places in the book, I think, that indicate as finite creatures, we'll still understand the passage of time. But, yeah, this is uh, what's coming is shock and awe. Yes. And uh, this is, the, the, as you said, this is kind of a calm before that storm comes. Well, I mentioned the 144,000. Give us some help on some of these groups, the 24 elders, 144,000, typically, you know, people have some pretty fanciful interpretations mm-hmm. or definitive interpretations of these. Yes. Uh, you know, the 144,000 are mentioned in chapter seven, then again in chapter 14. 
I take it to be a literal group of 144,000 Jewish males. That's the way they're described. They're, they're men. They're called males in, in chapter 14. And they're from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's so specific because if it just said it's 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, you'd say, well, okay, but it, it lists them. It goes to 144,000, 12,000 tribe of Judah, 12,000 from Reuben, 12,000 from Gad. Mentions all these tribes. The only two tribes not mentioned are Ephraim and Dan. And of course, Joseph replaces uh, Ephraim here, but those are the two places really that led Israel into idolatry. That's why a lot of people think they're not mentioned. But I think that these are 144,000 literal Jewish males who will be sealed by God, I think, for the purpose of carrying the gospel uh, around the earth, because the very next scene is a great multitude of Gentiles who've come to faith in Christ during the tribulation. I see a cause effect here. The 144,000 is the cause. This great multitude is the effect of their of their ministry. So I think there'll be you know, 144,000 Jewish evangelists uh, that will be ministering during the time of tribulation. Of the 24 elders, I take to be the church, I'm representative of, of the church of Jesus Christ. Some people believe it's Israel and the church together because you have the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. But you have the 24 elders in heaven in chapter 4. And I don't believe that the Old Testament saints will have been resurrected before the tribulation, only church-age believers. That gets into a whole, whole other issue. But yeah. I think that elders are to be symbolic um, of the church. Because elders today are, you know, the elders of your church are kind of symbolic of the church as a whole. And so these elders symbolize uh, the, the whole church of Jesus Christ. It's interesting to point out when I teach through the Gospels and we take groups of Israel, I'll often talk about the feeding of the 5,000 or the 4,000. That's probably just men, heads of groups, heads of households. So that would that would continue then in Revelation. Right. That's right. Yes. I think it's just a, a representative. Also, there were 24 courses of the priesthood in the Old Testament. And, of course, we're priests today. So the 24 priests would be symbolic of all, you know, of, all of all of us as believers. But the 24 elders, yeah, they're mentioned 12 times in the book. Right. So their, their mentions kind of you know sprinkled through the book. Anyway, certainly it's God's people, you know, whether you want to narrow it to the church or take it to the Jews and Gentiles together. When we read those passages, you know, we can see ourselves there in heaven. So it's a, you know, it's, it's thrilling to read about what we're going to do in the future. The two witnesses. Yeah, the two witnesses, um, you know, people have held that they're, uh, you know, Enoch and Elijah, because they didn't die. So they have to come back and die. You know, there's going to be a whole generation at the rapture that won't die. So, you know, that, I think that's not a reason to make them the two witnesses. Some say it's just two people who are going to live during the end times that we don't really know who they are yet. You know, it's just two prophets who will live during that time. I take it they're Moses and Elijah. Again, I wouldn't be dogmatic about that. But, uh, you know, they, they, they turn water to blood. Uh, they call fire down from heaven like Elijah did. You have Elijah and Moses mentioned together in the last a chapter of the Old Testament in Malachi. Uh, we have Moses and Elijah appear on the Mount of Transfiguration. So to me, with these you know miracles that are that are given here from them, it could be the two of them come back in the end times. And just like you know, Satan's gonna have his two men in the end times. Yes. Chapter 14, he has the beast and the false prophet, uh, these two beasts, a political ruler and kind of an economic uh, religious ruler. So God's gonna have his two men in the end times as well, uh, these two witnesses. And it's uh, yeah, in chapter 11, there's a fascinating passage. These two prophets who are, you know, and, and I think God may use the two witnesses to call down the trumpet judgments. Mm -hmm. Kind of like, you know, Moses 
it would go into Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses would kind of call these judgments down because it says in chapter 11, the whole world hates these two witnesses. I mean, people hate them and they celebrate when they finally die. So these two men have been like a thorn in the side of the world. And again, if you think about them calling these judgments down, I mean, the whole world is going to hate these men. It's fascinating. It says that, that no one can kill them, though. Yeah. Kill God. It says, and then finally, when they finish the word of their testimony, you know, God allows them to be killed, which to me is always encouraging. You know, none of us will die before we're, God's finished with us. You know, again, I don't have nearly your expertise or background, but I've, I've thought about the Moses and Elijah. You mentioned transfiguration. And also the burial of Moses is unique compared to contrast to Elijah, who is taken yes. to heaven. I remember uh, you may know our friend, Dr. Don Johnson, who uh, was he up with the cotton for many years? Um, no. Okay. He I, I can't remember where he served as a pastor, but he came when Don Campbell was president in Dallas and had worked with him, but just a dear guy. And when Howard Hendricks died, Mark Bailey and I were uh, very kindly invited to the graveside with the family. And he officiated over the graveside and he read the passage in Deuteronomy 34 of Jesus coming down in a theophany or Christophany and burying his servant Moses in a place no one knew. And he talked about it a few moments, and he said there's dignity in the burial, and it's important enough for Jesus to come down and bury the one servant he chose to whom he gave the law. And Mark Bailey and I looked at each other, and I went, have you ever made that observation? And we were like crying and laughing, going, this was remarkable. But yeah. it did change my perspective some on this whole aspect of what what you just what you mentioned, and it would be very fitting, wouldn't it, that the one God gave the law to, who saw God face to face, and Elijah, the most miraculous prophet, we might argue, would be those continuing witnesses. The witness of the law, and the yeah. witness of the prophets are put together along with the witness of the king. So anyway, a little yeah, fanciful, no, but interesting, I think. No, that's good. I like that. That'll preach, as uh, two saint used to say. That'll preach. Okay, talk to us about the designations of Satan, the red dragon and Satan and this woman and all this, you know, again, pretty incredible language. Well, you know, I think what you have in chapter 12 is, I really call this the war of the ages. You know, when you go all the way back to Genesis, you know, Adam and Eve fall, and God says there that one from the seed of the woman is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. So you've got this war set up. Let, let me interrupt you there. Expand on that just a little bit, because we often talk about proto-evangelism there. Yeah. So so help folks maybe that haven't heard that connection, Mark. Well, yes. When, you know, when Adam and Eve sin, obviously, you know, you've got this crisis now that's introduced. You know, you have, you have this perfect environment, kind of a perfect beginning. And you have this antagonist that comes along. Like every story, every story starts with a perfect beginning. And then you have this antagonist coming. Satan comes in and tempts them and they fall into sin. And then God goes and he curses the man, curses the woman, curses the serpent. And um, when he curses the uh, woman, um, he says, Satan's going to be after your seed. But you know, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to defeat him. He's going to bruise his heel. He'll bruise this head crusher's heel when he crushes him. And really, I, I, in my view, and again, people take different opinions of this, but I mean, to me, that, that sets the trajectory for the rest of the Bible. For the whole rest of the Bible is who's this one who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent, the seed of the woman. And obviously, Satan knows then that he's going to come from Abraham because God makes these promises to Abraham. He's going to come from Isaac and he's going to come from Jacob. I mean, he's going to come from Judah of Jacob's 12 sons. And then in the tribe of Judah, he's going to come from the family of Jesse. 
and then ultimately from the house of David. So you just have it narrowing down throughout the Old Testament. Where's this one going to come from? And so he's going to ultimately come from David. And of course, that's why in the Old Testament, Satan's trying to wipe out the Jewish people. He tries to wipe them out, you know, with, with uh, when they're in captivity, all the males being killed in Egypt. Um, he tries to do it in the book of Esther with uh, with Haman. Mm-hmm. He tries to do it in the time of, with Antiochus Epiphanes, you know, in, the, in the time between the Testaments, tries to do it with Hitler. I mean, he's trying to wipe out the Jews. I always like to say, you know, whenever Satan tries to wipe out the Jews, they always end up with a holiday. If you ever noticed that, you know, they get, they get Feast of Purim and Esther, they get Feast of Lights with Antioch. That's a hard way to get a holiday, <laughs> Doc. It is a hard way. But it says here that you, know, you have the woman here clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and her head, a, a crown of 12 stars. That's clearly Israel. Because the only place you have that imagery is in Joseph's dream in Genesis 37. The 12 stars here being the 12 tribes. And then the serpent here is after the woman. And then it mentions the male child who's born, and the serpent tries to kill him when he's born, which obviously is what Satan tried to do at the birth of Jesus through Herod. And then it goes on in this chapter to, it kind of catapults it into the end times and chronicles Satan's desire to destroy Israel during the end. So it's kind of this, it's one chapter that takes you all the way from the beginning of Satan's fall from heaven to his, you know, being after the, the Messiah to keep him from coming and kill him. And then once the Messiah came and died and was resurrected, Satan has gone now from plan A, keep the Messiah from coming and then being successful to plan B, which is wipe out the Jewish people so that God's promises for Israel cannot be fulfilled. And that's really the under how we understand all the anti-Semitism in our world. I and mean, that's where it all comes from. You know, this is, uh, you know, Satan's the ultimate anti-Semite who's trying to thwart the promises of God. And that's what you have here with the woman and, and ser- the serpent and this male child. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, and we'll carry through all the way to the end times. Do you think the uh, pious Jew who was around the law and heard it, do you think they connected this better than uh, modern J Bible believers? Oh, sure. I think you have this idea of a woman and seed and all of that. I mean, it's mentioned here. I mean, it's Anytime you have this woman mentioned and a child, that's what they're going to think about. Genesis 3.15, a woman, a child. And of course, you have the serpent mentioned here again. It's all this Genesis 3.15 imagery. Again, my theme of the book of Revelation is we're, we're coming to the inheritance of Christ coming back and taking the inheritance. Satan's trying to stop that. You know, he's been defeated at the cross, but he wants to defeat the final consummation of what Christ is to bring about. So there's a, a war that's going on to prevent that. That's good stuff, Doc. Good stuff. I, I did want to ask you a question before we, well, I'm going to jump over, over to Armageddon Armageddon for a moment. Charlie Dyer and I have a, a very interesting take on this, that there's not a literal battle, that it's just an assembling in Har Megiddo. It doesn't say they fought. It just right. says they gathered. You uh, take that differently? Correct me. Well, my view just is, you know, uh, there's going to be this final, you know, we call it the War of Armageddon, the Battle of Armageddon, uh-huh. whatever you want to call it. Yeah, they're gathered there at that place, but it seems to me that this final war really encompasses the whole lamb. Because back in chapter 14, he says, you know, the blood's going to fly to the horse's bridle, yeah. 184 miles is basically the length of, of the lamb. So to me, it's going to encompass Armageddon in the north. I mean, it's going to be in Jerusalem. You know, back in Joel 3, it talks about, you know, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which I take is the Kidron Valley there, the, the right. east of Jerusalem. You know, multitudes, multitudes in the Valley of Decision. I think it's going to spread all the way down to Edom in the south. 
because you have these passages in the Old Testament where Jesus is coming up from Edom down in the southern part of the modern day nation of Jordan. And it says his garments are drenched in blood. He's been treading the wine press alone. So to me, it, it's going to be all the way from the north and Armageddon down to Jerusalem, down to Edom. So they're going to gather there and this war is going to kind of just encompass the whole land. But you're right that Armageddon is kind of this place where they muster to begin with. You know, they kind of gather together there, this place. And then the war will kind of rage throughout the land. But, you know, really, we call it the Battle of Armageddon. I mean, it's really not a battle. You know, Dr. Pentecost, I know you had him at Dallas Seminary, but I took the Daniel Revelation class with him. And remember, we got to chapter 19. Jesus has this sword coming out of his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword. That all Jesus is going to have to do is just come back and say, drop dead, and it's going to all be done. Only the way Dr. Pentecost could say it. But it's not a battle from our perspective like that. It's Christ coming back to destroy the enemies who who are gathered there. And Lord of the Rings fans, uh, Peter Jackson's, you know, animations on steroids, and you see these hundreds of thousands of hawks fighting, and you go, that's, you know, no, he's just going to say something, and they're right. done. You know, and, and to me, it's reminiscent of the garden when they come to arrest him. Yes. Boom. And yeah, fall, yeah, slays him with the breath of his mouth, it yeah. says in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. So, but, you know, it's going to be this final gathering, yes, there, that's going to take place. And again, Armageddon, I mean, you know this, but some of the folks, listening man armageddon's a literal place yes harmageddon in, well, in fact we were over there last year i'm right we, we were we we're some of the last rats off the ship i mean covid was coming it was we got out of there on march the 13th oh boy last year i mean we, we barely got out the streets of israel of jerusalem were eerily empty but when i got back to the states it was really interesting i was looking online at some things and it said they had closed armageddon Armageddon was closed. And I thought, you know, it's bad when Armageddon's closed. So I always tell people, God's going to reopen it. You know, it's there you go. We won't need a vaccine when it's time. Okay. Let's, I hate to do it, but let's wrap up uh, verses 19 and 20 and following some of the richest texts in this book from uh, our future and our encouraging parts. The hallelujahs, the Lord. Our God. I wish this is when I wish I had a voice like James Earl Jones, you know, to read this chapter, you know. The Lord, our, our God, the Almighty, reigns. He is, he's no dead king. He lives forever. Yes, that's right. He's coming back. And again, the whole book is about getting this scroll open. It's finally opened after the bowls are poured out. Chapter 19, Jesus comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords. He comes back to take the inheritance, to set up his kingdom. And the armies there are defeated in chapter 19. Chapter 20, again, it's a controversial chapter, but I think it's pretty simple. Jesus, after his second coming, He's going to reign on the earth. He's going to do for a thousand years what the first Adam failed to do. He's going to rule and reign, and God's purposes for this world will be fulfilled. Then during that time, Satan's bound in the abyss for a thousand years during that millennium. When uh, Satan's let out at the end of the thousand years, there's kind of a final rebellion or revolt. Then there's the great white throne judgment. God's going to judge all those who are lost before this. It's the most sobering scene in all the Bible. Yes. Chapters 21 and 22 we're going to have a new heaven and a new earth. God's going to, in my view, going to destroy the present heavens and earth. You know, in Genesis 1, you have creation. I call this uncreation. God's going to speak it out of existence. And he's going to make a new earth and new heavens. And then the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, which is, I think, the abode of God now. It's a 1,500-mile cube. That heavenly city is going to come down and sit on the new earth. 
and will go into then eternity. And that will be what we call the eternal state or eternity, the heavenly city sitting on the new earth. It's kind of a metropolis of the new heaven and new earth. And God's going to make all things new. That's the end of the story. And again, in Genesis 1 and 2, you have the perfect beginning. No sin. And Revelation 21 and 22, you have the perfect ending. In between, we have the story of how you get from this perfect ending. The antagonist comes in. You have this crisis. God solves the crisis. And we get back to the perfect ending here. So the Bible really is a story. You know, it's a beautiful story uh, of the kingdom, of God's kingdom being brought back to earth and being restored to this earth through his Messiah. It's extraordinary stuff. Talk a little bit, and I, I adopted so many different, you know, learning along the judgments, the great white throne, the, you know, Ryrie accounts, I think seven different judgments we have in the New Testament, four or five. Can you give us Dr. Mark Hickok's uh, view of these judgments and how they, because we're talking about the great white throne in chapter right. 20, uh, and sometimes people go, well, which judgment is which? Right. Well, some people will include like judgment now, kind of of believers, you know, just the discipline, you know, that we undergo now as believers from God when we sin. Uh, certainly the first one in, in order, you know, will be the, the judgment seat of Christ. That's where believers, we're going to be raptured to heaven and we'll undergo the judgment seat of Christ. Not for our sins, I take it, but for our service. The issue there won't be our, our redemption. It'll be our rewards there. So that's at the rapture. Um, at the second coming of Christ, there's going to be several judgments. Uh, there's the judgment of the sheep and the goats. Um, which are Gentile nations, people who live through the tribulation, who are living Gentiles, who'll be judged by Christ. Living Jews who made it through the tribulation will be judged. That's Ezekiel 20. Um, Old Testament saints are going to be resurrected at that time. Right. They're going to be judged. And so those who you know live through the tribulation period, again, those couple of judgments for them. So there's going to be several series of judgments like that. But then the great white throne is at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennium. And that's when all the lost of all the ages will be dredged up, brought before God to be judged by him. So the judgment seat of Christ is only for believers. The great white throne is for unbelievers. These other judgments will be a mixture, you know, of the two. It's not a matter of whether you're going to be judged. You're going to be judged. And for, for us, if we're believers, we'll be at the judgment seat. For unbelievers, they'll be at the great white throne. But you don't get to choose whether you want to be judged or not. It's going to happen. And, uh, you know, obviously we need to trust Christ. So we're not at the great white throne, but even as believers, though, we need to live godly lives because our lives are going to be evaluated. We're going to be held accountable for what we've done with our time. A common teaching that has uh, gotten more and more traction, even among evangelicals is annihilation. Yes. And as I read revelation, uh, without trying to be hyperbolic or over the top, it doesn't seem like that's an option, Mark. Well, that's right. There's a lot of them, though. A lot, so annihilationism says when you die, it's just all over. You, know, you die, you're finished. Not, not a lot of people hold that particular type of, of idea because one of the problems is there are degrees of punishment you know, in, in the afterlife. It talks about some will be beaten with few stripes, some with many stripes. Well, you can't have degrees of annihilation. I mean, you're either annihilated or you're not. So a lot of what a lot of people hold to is what's called conditional immortality. And they say that there'll be a time when you will be extinguished and annihilated, but you'll, people will live for different periods of time before that happens. In other words, somebody may you know, live 10 years and then they're annihilated 20 years. So, but your, your immortality is conditioned. That's a conditional immortality. So some will hold to annihilationism. You die, it's just all over. Others, some kind of a conditional immortality. 
But then what we would believe in is what we would be unconditional immortality. Obviously, we're not immortal in the ultimate sense of that, like God is. God never had a beginning and it never has an ending. But we have a beginning, but we don't have an ending. And I think you see that in Revelation 14. I mean, you know, about the judgment. I mean, you can't have it stated more clearly. It says about, you know, those who don't know the Lord, they'll drink of the wine of the wrath of God. You know, they'll be tormented by, in the presence of the holy angels, the presence of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. I mean, it's, you can't say it any more clearly in Greek. They have no rest day and night. So, yeah, I think the idea that, you know, somehow, you know, the fires of hell will be extinguished at some point is wishful thinking. Now, I always like to say to people, I always hope on this that I'm wrong. And I hope that I am wrong. I, I don't want anybody to go to hell and suffer there eternally. But if I'm going to be faithful to the Bible, what it says, that's what we have to, to preach and teach right. the people. It is, it's, it's a disturbing doctrine. There's no doubt about that. But it's one that's true. We need to tell people that, and they, they need to know what's at stake. Well, to me, it goes back to the image bearer that we're made in his image. And right. once we're created, we're not immortal, but we're eternal from the yes. time we're created. And how yes. could he destroy that which was his image? No, you're right. But it's a sobering thought, but also it ought to be a motivator for us to evangelize too. Strong motivation, yes. Let's wrap it up, Dr. Hitchcock. Tell us two or three takeaways as you've taught and studied the book and what you might want people to to walk away with from this incredible ending to our text. Well, a couple of things. There's there's one pattern in the book of Revelation that's beautiful to me that I think is helpful. When you read the book, it alternates between heaven and earth. You start out, you know, in the first three chapters and you're on earth. And then chapters four and five, John gets caught up to heaven. And then in chapter six, you come back down to the earth again. Chapter eight, at the beginning of the chapter, you go back up to heaven again before the trumpet. Then you come back down to the earth again. And then in chapter uh, 11, you go back to heaven again. Then you come back to earth. It ping pongs back and forth between heaven and earth, these scenes do. And one of the things I think that that's showing us is, is that what's happening on earth is being controlled by God in heaven. If the whole book of Revelation was just showing you what was happening in heaven, you'd think, well, what's happening on earth? If it's just all about what's happening on earth, you'd be thinking, man, this is terrible. This is looks like total chaos. You know, is anybody in control of this? And so to me, the book of Revelation from beginning to end tells us about God's sovereignty, you know, that God is on his throne in heaven and what's happening here on earth is being controlled by God. And that's a great comfort to me when you go lay your head on the pillow at night. We see all the chaos in this world and the things we don't understand, but to lay the head on the pillow and say, there's a God who's seated on his throne in heaven. And the word throne appears 46 times in the book. God's on his throne and he's in control of what's happening. And all of history is in his hands and history is headed somewhere. It's, it's headed to the feet of Jesus Christ. And since history is headed there, that's where we need to live now. And that's what we need to be thinking about now. That's where it's going. And that's what the book of Revelation to me is about. It we're going to go. The world's going to go through a time of judgment, but it's the advanced history of how Jesus Christ becomes king. He's going to come back and he's going to reverse everything that that, that we see in this world that's been caused by sin. And he's going to reign a thousand years, and we're going to reign with him. So where it's going to be back to the garden again, where we're doing what we were supposed to do to begin with, taking dominion over this world and ruling and reigning with God and with Jesus Christ. But that's what the book of Revelation is about to me. And there aren't many things that are more applicable, I think, than that in life, to have that picture of where everything's headed and to to live our lives in light of that and in view of that now. I find it striking. Uh, So much of our literature has to do with kingdoms and kings and power Mm -hmm. and war and battles. 
it's so obvious in some respects, Mark, because people there, there's this allure to you know, the return of the king or a kingdom yeah. or you know what, whatever literature we we might Game love of thrones yes. or whatever it does yes. all this yeah and i find it striking too that between uh, israel and judah the good and evil kings that are always in combat and we we all long for a good king and yes. we have one yes amen and this is the story of his return according to uh, the lord of the rings trilogy about <laughs> yeah. the very word of god yeah well, that's right we have a king and he's coming yeah that's right he's coming back and it could happen any time. I mean, the book of Revelation says, you know, these things are going to come quickly. Yeah. You know, these these things are near. And I think that speaks of eminency. It doesn't mean immediacy. It doesn't mean it happened to happen immediately. Obviously, it hasn't. But it's eminency. It can happen at any time. Any, at any time, these events can begin to break in. And I think that's one of the, the things about the book as well. I mean, the, the book ends, you know, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to give to every man according to what he's done. These are some of his final words. Yes, I'm coming quickly. So it, it's an imminent event that can happen at any moment. And uh, certainly with our world today and everything that's happening, we have we have more reason than any time in human history to be, you know, as people used to say, you on the tiptoe of expectancy that Christ could come back. I have a, a very bad theological joke that no one ever laughs at but me, is that I believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ, just not in my lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I know he's going to come, but it won't happen in my life. You know, it'll happen yeah. sometime in the future. But yeah, that living on the edge of in, uh, the intimate return is hard to sustain. But it um, but it's a it's a reminder. The other thing that we can't touch on all of it is the prohibition, warning, terrifying comments don't change the word of God. Right. That's right. Don't mess with it. Yeah, the book of Revelation is, is the blessing book. It begins in chapter 1, verse 3, and says, you know, blessed is the one who reads, those who hear, and the one who does the things written in this book for the time is near. So it starts with a blessing, but it ends with a curse. Yeah. Don't add to and don't take away. What I always like to say is, you know, the, the cults that are out there, they're always adding to the Bible, and the liberals are always taking away from the Bible. Wow. So you've got both kind of things. You know, people are always adding to it. You know, we got another book. We got more revelation. But you got a lot of liberals taken away from Bible. You know, Jesus didn't say that. But this isn't true. Whatever. And both of those, uh, you know, he says, I'm going to add. You know, I'll, I'll I'll take away the blessings and add the judgments in this book to people who do that. So, and I think really with the book of Revelation being the capstone of the canon, it's the last book. John's the last living apostle. This statement here doesn't just apply to the book of Revelation. This is the capstone to to the 66 books, to, to the canon of Scripture. Don't add to it. Don't don't take away from it. Dr. Mark Hitchcock, we have a link in the show notes called The Truth and Timing of the Rapture that you can download free of charge. And if you search Mark's name on any search engine and books he's written, you'll find a plethora of titles that will interest you. Mark, thanks for your time. And when I talk to folks like you, I'm always humbled by the amount of time, research, energy, uh, sweat you've spent in study to be able to articulate what you've done in 45, 50 minutes for us. Thank you for your labors and your discipline, and God bless you in your pastoring. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And it's uh, our, our getting acquainted has been too long in coming, but hopefully we'll, we'll have opportunities to interact and uh, cross paths in the future. It'll be great. We should make it happen. Okay. Thank you. God bless Blessings, you. Mark. Thank you so much. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters.